Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A rocky week on world markets as investors worry about a prolonged Russian war on Ukraine, how China factors into the crisis as inflation remains high and recession worries increase. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson stunned the world with a surprise visit to Kiev to meet with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, promising more aid, including anti-ship missiles, as other NATO nations donate tanks and surface-to-air missile systems. This as sanctions on Russia are increased. The implications of the outcome of France's presidential primary as a sitting president, Emmanuel Macron, loses ground to right-wing candidates. Congress has started hearings into the Biden administration's $773 billion defense budget request, with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle privately suggesting they might add nearly $100 billion to the national security budget. China continues in its COVID grip as Airbus experiences order cancellations, and JetBlue is proposing the acquisition of Spirit Airlines. COVID has killed at least 985,000 Americans and more than 6.2 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, indeed. It wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all talking. And thanks so very much for making time for us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium in sunny Nashville, Tennessee. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. This last week, going daily to cover sea air space, uh, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, again, welcome back. Ron, walk us through uh, the week, a rocky week. Uh, investors sort of struggling with all of this, right? A prolonged uh, Russian war in uh, Ukraine, uh, inflation uh, concerns, how long they will last, right? Um, we have uh, quantitative tightening now uh, happening from the Fed, uh, some concerns that uh, the uh, bankers uh, and Jerome Powell have not been moving as quickly as, as they should. Uh, and then a couple of interesting stories, including in The Economist, uh, that we may be actually heading into into a recession. A recession. Sort of talk us to through some of these trends. What investors were telling you over the course of the week and how the group uh, performed. Yeah, there was a, it was a it was a pretty choppy week in the market. I mean, you had a couple couple things that were uh, garnering investor attention. Uh, probably you know the closest to our world that was really you know thought about in the broader market was. You saw the the Dow transports uh, really kind of collapse. Uh, so you know, there's an index of you know 20 transportation stocks, uh, and they they came down. And there's you know there's a theory called Dow theory where the transportation stocks tend to lead a downturn, uh, will lead a recession. It's a recessionary indicator, not always, but um, it's one of the you know one of the potential things that could suggest that 
slowdowns coming because uh, generally the, you know, the, the transportation stocks see it first and that would be you know not just airlines but that would be trucking train you know that, the, all that kind of stuff uh, moving things around um, so with the decline in the uh, the transports on top of that you had the 10-year yield continuing to climb um, and, and, and when you put all this in perspective I think our um, our lead investment strategist uh, Michael Hartnett um, pointed out some interesting numbers so if you look at uh, in, in aggregate in 2020 and 2021, $32 trillion of fiscal and monetary stimulus was uh, doled out globally and $32 trillion. Um, and then if you think about central banks, buying, central banks buying back bonds, they were buying back $800 million of bonds every day, every hour um, during that period. And now um, it's pulled back a little bit to $600 million of bonds uh, every day, every hour. So the amount of stimulus floating around globally is huge. Uh, and that's you know, one of the key contributing factors to what's going on here. Um, he put in a note out to clients that, you know, there could be an inflation shock uh, that's worsening. You could see a rate shock and that, that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you're, and I think he's an indicator of what you're seeing kind of more, more broadly on the, on the street. The 10-year, which we've been tracking, the 10-year bond, which we've been tracking on this podcast for a while, and now is at 2.7. Um, and just to remind everybody, if you go back to August, it was at 1.2, right? So the 10-year has moved up really meaningfully. Um, if you look at um, the what you would pay for a 30-year mortgage, um, you know, that's that's more than doubled. It's over you know 5% on, on, an, on an average home. And I think if you look at, and just these kind of broader indicators about you know how the economy is feeling and what's going on. If you were to try to buy a home today, just an average home in the U.S. somewhere, if you look at uh, home prices plus the impact of the increase in um, in interest rates, what you would pay uh, on a monthly basis for just a typical home in the U.S. somewhere um, is about double of what it was about a year ago. Right, so that that's what starts to you know hit the broader economy. When you think about our group, it, it, it was pretty choppy week. Um, uh, the defense stocks were broadly up on um, you know, the outlook on the budget, what's going on in Eastern Europe. Um, so you know, I'll give you a feel there. Lockheed Martin was up almost 3.5%, uh, Northrop Grumman 2%. Uh, Boeing was down uh, 8% on the week. Um, and that had to do with some company-specific stuff. But the commercial stocks generally were, were down. Uh, Raytheon, uh, because it's a mix of both, was interestingly just flat. Um, the S and P 500 was down uh, a little over a percent, so it was it was a choppy week, and uh, I think everybody's kind of expecting that to continue um, for for the next while because of all these moving factors in the market and you know fear on inflation, rates, the Fed, what's going on in Eastern Europe, so on and so forth. Um, let me ask you really quickly about some Boeing-specific uh, uh, news. I want to get to Ukraine um, and and China and all of that. But w- was this because of the of Glass Lewis urging investors to vote against Larry Kellner again as chairman? I don't. I don't think so. No. I mean, I think it's just just broader issues around uh, when our seven eight seven is going to start getting delivered again. When is the rate of deliveries of seven three seven is going to go up? I think there's broad recognition now that if you look at the deliveries of 737s that Boeing's been posting, that they're probably about a month behind where they would need to be uh, to get to their target of maybe 500 deliveries by the end of the year. So they're roughly 10% behind their schedule. 
that would suggest that their cash flow numbers that you know, the street is looking for are probably too high for the year. So my, my sense is the street's just trying to adjust to you know, that. And then on top of it, uh, you know, a topic that's come up a lot is you know, the, the Chinese aviation market with the lockdowns in China and given the importance of the Chinese aviation market, um, having that really you know, be kind of down and out at the moment isn't, isn't helping anybody. But the airline stocks were down, Boeing also trades in sympathy with that. So kind of back to the Dow transports, with the airlines being down, um, and the, the fear of, you know, of this potential slowdown out there, I think it all compounded on them. Um, and, and we'll uh, get to the AirAsia uh, move, obviously some Airbus cancellations there as, as well uh, as folks, uh, folks uh, focus on what the long haul market is going to look like. Sash, let me bring you into the conversation. Uh, British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson's uh, hero uh, personally and politically is Winston Churchill. He likes uh, the idea of being seen as a wartime prime minister. It also allows him to, you know, a little bit of a welcome distraction from domestic British politics, even though He's, uh, you know, sort of back in the saddle, if you will, channeling uh, four decades of the Falkland Islands and all of that. Um, he was in Ukraine uh, to meet with Zelensky in person, walk the streets of Kiev, pledge more help. Uh, this comes in the wake of a, a NATO meeting where allies did uh, decide to do more to help Ukraine, ratchet up sanctions uh, on Russia, including Putin's daughters. And we saw NATO Secretary General Jens uh, Stoltenberg, who's been extended in the job by a year, given the crisis, say that, look, this is going to be prepared and Europe must be must steal itself for the long haul. Uh, this is you know, Russia regroups, calls up reserves, prepares to further maul the country and expand the campaign uh, to hold and actually take more ground in the East. What are the key takeaways for you over the course of what has been um, a, a week where, despite the Russian repositioning, we've seen not just atrocities mount, but new attacks, for example, in the Kramatorsk uh, train, uh, train station, for example, targeting civilians? Okay, so I was, there's a lot to cover there. Um, Boris Johnson's visit to Kiev, um, I mean, personally, I think just walking around in Kiev, not wearing a flak jacket, you know, not wearing body armor is a good look. Uh, other politicians who admittedly uh, um, visited Kiev when it was a much higher risk place because Russian forces were much closer or wore body armor. Um, I would in their position, but, you know, being seen doing a walkabout in a, in a suit and tie, uh, that, that's a good look. But Interestingly, very little cut through uh, in terms of British politics. Um, it's widely accepted that uh, Boris Johnson is, is having, a, having a good war, but it doesn't actually affect his polling very much. The Ukrainian war um, is you know, not seen as being particularly positive politically, if only because however well uh, the UK or the, the prime minister does, uh, the cost of living issues in terms of higher oil prices, higher gas prices actually outweighs that. And in terms of, you know, what's the big political debate at the moment, it's actually about cost of living. Uh, and so in as much as, you know, the Ukraine war contributes to that, and it does because uh, they all the talk about sanctions on Russian uh, oil and gas deliveries means that the price is going to go higher because there's going to be less of the, the two commodities around. Um, you know, that's, that seems to be uh, what cuts through for the, for the uh, people being uh, polled in that respect. So... You're absolutely right. Sanctions are increasing. I mean, I think what's been very, very interesting about this whole situation has been the, the macro political uh, issue. It's been the degree to which Europe has been far more united than it normally is able to be over an extended period of time. And in European politics, six, eight weeks is an extended period of time. Normally, by that stage, one of the 28, 30, 35 um, 
countries involved, and generally half a dozen have gone rogue um, because you know these are all uh, these are all democracies. These are all countries with different um, world or region views, uh, but in fact they haven't. Uh, they've very much kept together in terms of the uh, uh, approach to sanctions on Russia. Uh, very much kept together in terms of. Uh, a, a common view against China, which is absolutely remarkable. Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to that. And the process of supplying the U Ukraine with arms continues. It's um, it looks a bit bitty. Different countries do different things, but you could argue that there's a you know that process of sort of playing tag. So earlier on the in the week, Slovakia said we will supply an S300 uh, unit. Um, which is actually several far um, uh, transport erector launchers, uh, because the US is going to forward uh, base uh, a Patriot unit, which provides Slovakia with some defence. I mean, important to point out, Slovakia cannot afford to buy Patriots on its own, even as in this situation. So that Patriot um, uh, deployment by the US may end up being a semi-enduring one, uh, certainly until things uh, improve a, a great deal. But, you know, supplying S-300 to Ukraine, that's big. The UK is emptying its armour exam to Ukraine. Let's be absolutely honest about it. We've got very little in the way of anti-armour capabilities left, and uh, we're draining our short-range air defence capabilities. But that is not a bad out. You know, that's not a bad thing to be doing given right. the outcome. And the big change for uh, Johnson's visit there was committing to send anti-ship missiles. Important to note that if these come from the UK, they will not be Harpoon, which is a long-range anti-ship missile, 80 nautical mile plus, because we don't have any except on board our ships, but there will probably be Brimstone, uh, which is a, a short range um, system, 15, 15 to 20 ke uh, kilometers, uh, would still be very, very powerful against a Russian invasion fleet trying to take Odessa. Uh, and this would probably start to change the, uh, you know, the entire uh, maritime environment in the, uh, the Northwest Black Sea. One of the things that's really been interesting on how this campaign has gone is how the alliance has used different voices in different ways. In, indeed, kudos to Boris Johnson being on a Kiev street, uh, wearing a suit, not wearing body armor, not wearing a helmet, and, and walking with the Ukrainian president was a very, very powerful message. And I think that Boris Johnson's uh, rhetoric and words on this have been very, very important, uh, as, as have been other leaders. But it's fascinating how the alliance has used each one of these engagements, right? I mean, there's no way the U.S. Secret Service was going to agree to put an American president there, and it might have been seen as too provocative. But having the British prime minister go, then raise anti-ship weapons, then allows some other country to put anti-ship weapons uh, on the table, maybe, which would be very game-changing as a Russian fleet tries to get around, uh, obviously, through the Dardanelles and uh, the Bosphorus and into, uh, into the Black Sea. So we'll see whether or not the Turks apply the Montreux Treaty. Uh, Richard, from, from your standpoint, sort of key war-related takeaways that you thought were interesting? We're seeing the continued bifurcation in fortunes in so many different ways. You know, I mean, that K-shaped pattern that emerged between international and domestic traffic recoveries, that K-shaped pattern that emerged between civil and military market demand, that K-shaped pattern that emerged between single aisles and twin aisles, all of these were you know, <laughs> pre-existing before the Ukraine horror, and uh, now we're accelerated even further. They're, they so were pre-existing conditions. They were pre-existing conditions, and now they're being accelerated further. You know, and 
many of the problems that were, you know, associated with the pandemic were pre-existing conditions like overcapacity in the twin oil market, or again, the uh, continued favorability of military markets relative to civil markets. What we're seeing with Ukraine almost on a daily basis is just even more acceleration of that, that, that K-shaped, those K-shaped patterns. Uh, so when we talk about the increase in the defense budget, when we talk about the huge spending on missiles and munitions, all of these things were pre-existing, but have been, you know, accelerated greatly. And, uh, you know, obviously when it comes to air transport markets, it, you know, we're just going to see even more. I, I should mention, you know, we've been doing a bit of work on the whole international jetliner demand out uh, range. And we've never seen backlogs this low for twin aisles as a percent of the total industry backlog as we're seeing now. We've never seen deliveries of twin aisles as a percent of the total market as we're seeing now. So, you know, jetliner and aircraft and aerospace markets are behaving in ways that I guess you could see in hindsight happening as a consequence, both of the pandemic and the, uh, the Ukraine war. I want to get to uh, China in a moment and how this uh, plays into it and commend uh, folks to check out your piece that was in foreign policy that was really good, sort of making a case why the Chinese should not, you know, there are a lot of reasons why the Chinese should not be with the Russians uh, ultimately. But I want to shift the conversation to defense spending uh, a, a bit. Uh, Ron, on on uh, Friday's program, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, uh, said, you know, he thinks that there will be uh, almost a a uh, $1 trillion budget at the end of the day, right? I mean, there might be a $100 billion increase to U.S. Uh, defense spending. That would vault it uh, close to uh, $900 uh, billion a year and, and might actually be, you know, even higher than that, right? I mean, if you, uh, if you add up all of the other elements of, of national security. Uh, from, from your standpoint, where is the street on its expectations uh, of, of where, what the upside of this budget Will be because you know you have to add Department of Energy, right? I mean that's important uh, spending as well. Whether or not you know the the submarine launched cruise missile, the nuclear tipped uh, submarine launched cruise missile has been canceled or not, there's still a lot of money that goes to the Department of Energy uh, in the tens of billions of dollars. Where 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 are investors on what their expectations are? Yeah, I think if you if you just look at the you know the generalist community that's been more active in defense. You know, they looked at the Biden request and said, oh, OK, maybe that's where people were thinking it would be. It doesn't seem too exciting. Um, when I've had conversations with investors and I suggest that, hey, you know what, there might be upside to that um, in terms of plus ups that can happen in the whole process on the Hill, uh, maybe an additional 40 billion or something like that. Uh, I think that raises some eyebrows. So if indeed this were to, to play out, if we were to see uh an additional 100 billion added to to the budget. I, I, that's not expected at all. So I, I think that would you know surprise investors if indeed um, that were to play out. Um, and so so yeah, uh, that's that, that's not in investor think, thinking right now. Um, if you were to see see that kind of thing, thing play out, and in fact, if you look at you know where defense valuations are today, broadly of the U.S. stocks, they're about in line with the market, um, which was a big increase from where they were trading before all this happened. They were trading at probably, eh, depending on the, the, the stock, anywhere from uh, the, the specific company, anywhere from a 20 to 30% discount to the market. Now they're trading in line with the market. Uh, so trading trading in line with the market doesn't suggest that the uh, that the market's anticipating that, that kind of potential plus up uh, in the budget. 
Uh, I, sh I should uh, point out, right, the administration is asking for 773. It's about 813 if you include the Department of Energy in it. And there were folks that were talking about the 840 uh, neighborhood uh, for uh, the budget. Um, and depending on who you talk to, then eight, you know, it goes from 773 to 840, or does it go to the 8? 20s and then you know what i mean i mean so there is a lot of budgetary math that goes with it uh about where it would get us but there is this very powerful sense that it's like sort of spend now and avoid spending more later deter now is much cheaper than getting into a war having to fight it or deal with the repercussions uh at the at the end of the day uh sash let me uh go, go to you and then and then uh go to go to richard on on uh the u.s uh defense budget take but i wanted to sort of ask you like what progress have we been seeing on european uh, defense spending over over the week, right? I mean, we're we're tracking something that changes by the day in terms of announcement and decisions that nations uh, are are making, uh, whether it's getting more F-16s or or anything else, right? I mean, what have been sort of the interesting budgetary moves that you've seen over the past week? Short answer is none, um, and I I actually don't think we should focus on European defense budgets. They are a backward-looking statement of what was spent, and you know, I mean, occasionally nations use them as a means of, of forward signaling. But actually, the, the whole situation in Europe is moving so fast at the moment that the budget, uh, the, the, the actual budget gets let or, you know, gets uh, left behind a lot of the time. So the next big budget issues that we are looking at will be the Swedish defence budget sometime in Q3, French defence budget, possibly if someone other than Emmanuel Macron wins the uh, presidency, but, you know, that's going to be probably three, four months out uh, yet. Um, but otherwise, really, it's going to be much more important what countries announce in terms of equipment orders. And the equipment orders will then shape what the budget, the individual budget for that country is uh, over a three, four, five year period. Remember, most European budgets are, are or, sorry, most European equipment orders are multi-year. Some European countries have multi-year budgets as well. Uh, in particular, France and Italy are, have, are very, very good at forward um, uh, budgeting. But, you know, the budgets themselves, I don't think anybody is focusing terribly on the on the budgets in most European capitals. What they're focusing on is what do we need or what might we need? So we talked to a number of companies this week uh, who just said that the, the pace of conversation, that's a polite term, with their European customers has just gone through the roof. You know, Europe, the, the only thing that European customers are interested in now is how much can you provide of X and when? Um, when they can get an answer to that, then they can decide actually, well, then they'll do some sort of triage as to which are the most important or which are less important. Then they'll place an order and then they'll shape the, the individual national budget around that. Uh, but I, I think these things, you know, I mean, I was very, very interested by um, the Slovak uh, supply of S300 because that means that at some stage in the next three to five years, Slovakia will buy a brand new Western air defense system. Will that be, I think, I think Patriot is out of there um, uh, cost personally, but you know, NASAMS, the Raytheon Kongsberg system looks eminently sensible. Uh, and so countries doing that, um, countries in the Baltic states saying we actually need more air defenses. So there's going to be more de demand for, uh, you know, for medium range air defense systems there. Could also be the MBDA, you know, sea sector, but or sorry, land sector. But that's really the way we think about it. We're not focusing on, but on budgets because 
you know, the, the budget data is is not terribly interesting. And as I said, it's very backward looking. I'm going to take a moment here uh, to uh, for a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and uh, Control. And check out our interview uh, next week with L3 Harris's uh, Sean uh, Stackley talking about uh, JADC2 issues and uh, challenges. Uh, Sash, um, I just want to add sort of parenthetically, right, two interesting developments at the NATO uh, meeting were uh, first uh, that uh, the alliance is going to have a more significant and permanent uh, presence in the east. Uh, right. I mean, so if Russia was trying to accomplish anything, it was actually counter to, um, you know, the, the alliance is going to spend more time in, his, in that neighborhood rather than less. And you also have Finland and Sweden very seriously considering NATO membership. And it has become extraordinarily popular, extraordinarily quickly uh, in uh, Finland. Um, which, yeah, uh, yeah. I, th- I think what's interesting is that if you'd asked people six months ago, they would have said Sweden first, then Finland. You know, the, the Finns were, after all, legally neutral. I mean, they, you know, for all of the post-war period, uh, right up to the end uh, or beyond the end of the uh, of the Soviet Union, and therefore I think even three months ago, probably people would have said, "Yeah, the, you know, the Finns will stay neutral-ish, but the Finn, the the Swedes are tending towards becoming more and more engaged with uh, with NATO." And actually, now, as you say, it's the other way around, um, and uh, Finland will probably have a vote on it this year, uh, and that will, I think, that will put a lot of pressure on NATO probably from now, to think about how to respond, because a vote to join NATO will be provocative. You could argue that actually Russia has uh, a lot of things on, on its plate at the moment and probably can't respond, but that's a big old gamble to take, isn't it? Uh, so NATO probably needs to uh, forward deploy some sort of uh, forces very quickly if NATO, uh, sorry, Finland votes for NATO. And, you know, as far as the new uh, NATO battle groups, four new battle groups going into Eastern Europe, there were already four in uh, Northeast Europe, Baltic States and Poland. Um, I think the important thing is you know, NATO deplo- forwards deployments right up to uh, the um, Ukrainian uh, Belarusian uh, border and the Black Sea are now, I think, a fact going to be there for as long as they, as long as Russia is. I should also point out Finland has an 850 mile uh, border with the Russians. Uh, and that would actually effectively dub- double NATO's sort of contact surface uh, with uh, with uh, the Russians. Um, let me um, but, quickly. But remember, have... NATO's uh, NATO's contact surface tripled with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, in, indeed, because indeed. we, we yeah, went we absolutely. went from the inner German border, <clears throat> and the inner German border was really quite small, just very densely packed with armor, to this huge uh, um, uh, line all the way from the Baltic down to the um, uh, down to the Black Sea. You're uh, you're you're also uh, making clear your British Army of the Rhine allegiances right there, uh, Sash Tusa. Uh, let me very quickly ask you about uh, Macron, and I want to bring uh, go back to everybody. But since we're focused now on on Europe, uh, Emmanuel Macron is very very consequential. Obviously, this is a primary uh, right. Uh, you know, there will be a runoff between uh, whoever uh, are the. F- finalists uh, from this, but there is a concern Macron was a little bit slow off the mark and far right uh, candidates uh, might do very well. Indeed, uh, everybody is mad at him from the left and the right for being a centrist and actually trying to move the needle on a number on a number of issues. He also matters because he's been instrumental in not just standing up to Putin, but also helping change the EU position on China. And last week, EU leaders had an extraordinary meeting with Xi Jinping, where they made it clear that business as usual with China is is over. Talk to us a little bit about the importance and implications of the election 
and especially of that extraordinary EU meeting. And then Richard, want to get your take on it and serve that as a bridge because you wrote a terrific piece in foreign policy uh, talking about China and the choices uh, that it's got. Sash, give us your, your sense and then we'll go to Richard. Yeah, okay. So I mean, just for the, those listeners who perhaps aren't aware of the French political system, for the presidency, um, there's an initial, effectively a primary where um, anybody who gets enough nominations from mayors and MPs and so forth can uh, can stand. Um, well over half a dozen serious candidates, uh, and and the vote for that is uh, is today Sunday, uh, and then the top two polling candidates then go through to a straight one-on-one runoff, um, and. Uh, you know, President Macron is, you know, he, there's no reason uh, to think that he's not going to go through to the, uh, to, to the runoff. He's, he's polling by far the strongest of the candidates. The concern, um, and we've seen this in French stocks being significantly weaker and French bonds being significantly weaker this week, uh, is that uh, Marine Le Pen, um, who has historically been significantly to the right, um, and her father was deeply right wing and unpleasantly so, um, uh, that she could be not only the the candidate to go forward, but that actually in a straight runoff between her and Macron, it would be very, very, very close indeed. Uh, You know, some of the polls are saying uh, 53, 47, 58, uh, 48, something like that in favour of Macron, but that's too close to count in a a French election. Um, And so that certainly rocked French markets this week. Um, Macron is a very, very interesting candidate. He's not, he, it's less that he's centrist than that he tries to make sure that he grabs as many policies from left and right as possible. But he's a deeply divisive uh, uh, politician within France. It's very easy to be divi- a divisive politician in France, uh, to be fair, probably easier than almost any other um, country, because all you have to do is probably say the right things about, um, or uh, to say things about how the French should should go about doing their domestic businesses, and you know one of the things that's really brought him down been trying to uh, increase the retirement age. Um, we really should all live in France. You retire very young and terribly comfortably, uh, and he he has always wanted to change that. But uh, that that is not, however sensible that is, that's not a vote winner, winner at the moment. Um, I would take issue with uh, you saying that he's um, uh, stood up to Putin. I think that actually, from a European context. Macron has been seen um, in particular by President Zelensky of the Ukraine as being one of the uh, one of the problems of the European uh, United Front because he has uh, Macron is perceived to have wanted to have done deals with Putin either because uh, he thinks he can or because he thinks he could get political gain from that. Uh, so I think his record there at best is mixed and that is a euphemism. Um, China much more interesting uh, and you're absolutely right. The EU uh, had a um, big video meeting with the Chinese and the, the Chinese normally expect to be able to divide the EU up into little slices. One big slice, Germany, which always wants to do trade with China and therefore will roll over and then other nations who don't terribly count. And what was fascinating about this one, uh, this was that the EU had a totally united front and is just linking China directly with the war in Ukraine and saying you're backing the wrong side. If you keep doing this, there will be um, very, very significant uh, repercussions. And it's a it's a fascinating situation because unlike with Russia, where Russia supplies more of the stuff that Europe needs, gas, oil, than Europe supplies to Russia, China, China supplies, uh, or rather, Europe is a huge customer for China. The Chinese economy would suffer enormously from any sort of sanctions. 
And that's exactly what the Chinese don't need at the moment. And, and I appreciate from Zelensky's uh, perspective uh, that that's certainly how we would perceive uh, Macron. Although uh, if you talk to folks in, in Paris, they would tell you like, look, we were trying to moderate and, and figure out some way uh, to uh, you know, participate in the negotiations to keep this uh, calamity uh, from uh, from happening, Richard. Let me uh, bring you into the into the discussion. Uh, you wrote uh, a great piece, as I mentioned, uh, that ran in Foreign Policy. China has nothing to gain from an aerospace alliance with with Russia. Uh, talk to us, sort of more broadly, in this theme of decoupling that we have been covering now for many years. Uh, there were uh, certainly uh, signs of it uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, it accelerated under the Trump administration and shows no sign of abating or changing. And indeed, the Biden administration is doing a more organized push by getting allies and partners aboard in, in, in pushing back against the Chinese. And very clearly what's happening in Ukraine is regarded as one of those battles, uh, right? If we allow this to happen, then we're giving a green light or make it uh, or encourage the Chinese to make a similar uh, miscalculation. Whatever the criticisms are of the, the way the administration is doing it, right? This whole sense of self-deterrence has a lot of people worried because then you can hide behind your nuclear shield and, you know, you know effectively, uh, succeed in fending off any any pushback. But from your perspective, decoupling the China meeting and why China actually should be turning its back on Russia rather than turning toward Moscow. Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for mentioning the piece I wrote. You know, I think it's important to remember we've seen this movie before. You know, at the start of our career, Russia had its own aerospace ecosystem, Soviet Union, of course. Um, there was remarkably little contact. I mean, it's industrial contracts certainly didn't flow across borders. Jetliner sales didn't flow across border to the borders to the USSR and its client state. Uh, China, of course, was closely allied with the system. It mattered a lot less as a market back then, but basically it was the democracies versus the autocracies. Uh, and, you know, broadly speaking, obviously there were our autocrats and their autocrats elsewhere in, in, in emerging markets. But for the most part, you could divide the world that way. It was a Cold War, it was uh, the Iron Curtain, all that sort of thing. And jetliner markets reflected that. Air, the aerospace industry reflected that. Um, and then, of course, everything changed circa 1989, 1990. And, you know, it's, it's been 30-something years in which things have been extremely global. And now we're going back, it seems, towards that, because China seems to be throwing in its lot with Russia. I argue that this is a colossal mistake by China. Basically, by enabling Russia, they're basically gaining exactly nothing, and their aerospace industry will suffer for it grievously. Their air transport sector will suffer for it grievously. You know, in terms of air transport, in terms of uh, overall industrial capabilities and civil aerospace, uh, Russia is quickly morphing into North Korea, only with, uh, you know, the usual caveats that they've got thousands of nuclear warheads. So, this is an area of great concern, uh, because if we do lose China as a market for the jetliner business, you know, you're right. You know, Europe sells a lot more or buys a lot more than it sells. That's true for the U.S. too, but not for the jetliner business. That is the biggest single export market for jetliners on the planet. So it's kind of important they don't go down this path. And uh, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, you look at that combination of um, all those autocracies and what they have in common. Well, they have a desire for closed borders and therefore an aerospace ecosystem that is very competitive. State-owned enterprises and autocracies produce crap aircraft. And that's what we'll see. 
so yeah, that's another thing I'd like to spend more time pointing out uh, in the months ahead, that if this uh, entente emerges between Russia and China, it not only does it remove a big chunk of the market from the world's jet makers, but it also produces this extremely inefficient, unproductive ecosystem that just can't be good for the world. Um, but um, if, if I may, these are two nations that are using their wealth to execute strategies that basically result in collapsing the global rules-based order that was created to move away from might makes right in 1945 and in the wake of the deaths of 40 million to 100 million people, right? They, you know, Russia started this war um, and, and the Chinese show no intention, right? I mean, China is, has made abundantly clear, America and the West must fail in Ukraine for us to succeed in our alliance and what we want to do with the Russians and autocrats around the world, right? In a mercantilist system. I mean, are we being a little Pollyanna in, sure, let's trade jets and everything else with them because it would be good for us financially, I appreciate that. It would. It is good for us financially. However, the minute that Comac can make a good airplane, they will try to supplant all the companies that are selling them these airplanes, right? I mean, so you're either going to pay now, pay in the middle, or pay later, and maybe pay later even more dearly if, God forbid, uh, there is a war. And the, and the Chinese quite plainly discuss, like, we're, we're taking Taiwan by 2027, come hell or high water, whether peacefully or not. Right. And we've seen that once an autocrat decides he's going to go to war, they go to war and they're not particularly steered clear of warnings or repercussions. Right. They don't get integratedly deterred. So, I mean, are, are we, you know, I, I really don't care what's good for China's aerospace ecosystem, particularly. Right. Are, are we going, some, you know, are, are we whistling past some graveyard at the end of the day? Uh, I would argue that keeping them with an economic incentive to be integrated into the global economy should be a high priority rather than sealing their borders. You know, I think the COMAC story is interesting in itself, as we've mentioned before in previous podcasts, you know, there really is no plan to get China uh, developing commercial jetliners. There is a ridiculously superficial Potemkin village concept that involves, you know, putting a Chinese flag and a bunch of Chinese aluminum over a collection of Western technologies and systems, uh, rectifying that rather dismal path, which is, is easily thwarted by US uh, military end user controls and, and whatever else, um, would take many more billions of dollars and frankly, decades more than they're expecting. In other words, I don't think they're aware of their own limitations. And the other thing, of course, is that from the standpoint of growth, that reliance upon an indigenous set of jetliners, which may or may one day not, or, or may or may not be one day evolved to meet Chinese needs, uh, would result in exactly the same story that we saw with the USSR. It's not a 727, it's a Tupolev 154. 80% is good. You know, that is just not a good way to run an industry. But, but I mean, don't you, I guess the question is, is the continuation of trade dependence on the world changing any vector of Chinese behavior in any meaningful way? Their goals don't appear to have changed. And indeed, 
everything is designed to make sure that we control, you know what I mean? One Belt, One Road has made sufficient investment in enough countries that we can count on them not voting against us in the UN, right? So it might not be as stark uh, as it was in the General Assembly, right? I mean, what on that factor, are we actually dissuading the Chinese from doing anything? Well, I think changing their behavior here in any way. This is exactly that moment. Um, If they go down this path and support Russia, then yes, everything needs to change. They need to be completely cut off. And by the way, your jetliner programs are completely dead. Your thin pretense of Chinese-ness for the C919, goodbye. You've got an aluminum tube. All of that needs to go. And you're already seeing, it's it's kind of fascinating. Among the jetliners that are attempting to be repossessed uh, that were, you know, from, from lessors outside Russia, are in fact from Chinese leasing companies. They want their jets back. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, this is a good place to fight a battle, an economic battle, a a political and diplomatic battle with China. Don't back Russia. Otherwise the consequences for your economy, your technology base, your industry are going to be dire. You know, I'm not magically expecting them to come back to a rules-based order. I'm not expecting them to stop having, you know, the desire to take Taiwan back. But at least let's get get them to play by the rules and let's show them the consequences if they don't. Extremely well said. And uh, because I've gotten into longer conversations with Sash uh, and Richard, we now have to go to a a bit of a lightning round. And Ron is is going to hit that lightning uh, round. Uh, Anything you want to add to this discussion more broadly, Ron, before I because I have to ask you ask you guys about covid uh, and Airbus cancellations in particular. We have to touch uh, JetBlue and Spirit uh, by unanimous consent. We will not discuss an A380 flying with green fuel uh, and, of course, hit the National Space Symposium and SpaceX's uh, launch. So very quickly, Ron, do you have anything you want to say about China, Russia, markets, where we're going? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there are a couple of quick factors, right? So, you know, I, I think the prevailing view on, on the street is, and it's probably not wrong, that um, Europe, and I think Sasha said this in the, in the past, doesn't have the capacity to, to supply everything that they're going to need uh, if indeed um, defense budgets in Europe go up when they go up. So some of that will flow over to the U.S. contractors, among others. And so I think that's an expectation on the street. Two, when you, when you think about China and Russia, and, and I think this is an, an important point, I, I do believe um, Secretary Kendall pointed this out, but it's, it's huge. When you look at the U.S. defense budget, it's half of the Russian economy. When you look at the U.S. defense budget, it is 5% of China's economy. So when you do think about these two nations and the potential impact they have and their importance, China is a whole other basket of fish, right? I mean, it's just it's a really big basket of fish. It's an important one, and they have a lot of weight they can throw around. I agree with Richard um, 100% on um, pretty much everything he said about you know their domestic uh, ability to develop commercial aircraft. However, they got a big wallet. Um, and that's something the Russians never, ever have had. Um, that'll help them, right? Um, that'll help them, you know, in time frame to develop technology, pull things together and do what they need to do. And, and as we all know, it's a difficult enterprise. It's going to take time, um, but, but they got a big wallet and that'll help them. So it's, I think to some degree, Chinese independence in aerospace is inevitable. It's just a question of when. Um, let me, uh, and I want to continue uh, this conversation and we can continue it next week, but very quickly, uh, Ron, Airbus cancellations, Air Asia, 
What does it mean? Uh, what's the uh, impact on the market? Uh, and then very quickly, Sash Richard, if you guys want to weigh in on that, uh, hit it, Ron. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing weakness in the wide body market. Uh, you know, Richard already alluded to that in terms of backlog levels and deliveries. And this is just that, that bifurcation that we're seeing between narrow body and wide body markets. Uh, you know, we're not expecting the wide body market to, to pick up until a decade at best. Um, I think Richard might be even more bearish than that, which is probably right, honestly. Maybe we're being optimistic. Um, but it's just, it's just further evidence that we're seeing this bifurcation between narrow body markets and wide body markets. Sash? The specific news item this week was Airbus orders and deliveries for March and hence for Q1. Um, and within the March orders and deliveries, there were there were more cancellations almost than anything else, uh, including cancelling the entire 63 aircraft order from AirAsia X. I actually think this is a terribly good thing. The AirAsia order was a joke and has been a joke for at least three years and possibly longer. It was a, uh, a creature created of hubris. Um, back in the old days, where you had to you had to win um, every single air show in terms of new orders, and Airbus sort of compounded the issue by initially taking a very large order from AirAsia X, and then uh, getting a, a follow-on order a couple of years later. It would, became very apparent very quickly that AirAsia X was a a busted um, uh, business model. It, you, you know, nobody's made long-haul, uh, low-cost uh, work for a sustained period of time, let alone with a fleet of. 70, 80 aircraft or whatever it, it was they were going to have. Um, so, you know, you could argue that I mean, Air, half of Airbus's cancellations this year have been wide bodies. That's an incredibly high proportion um, of those, you know. And if you look at Airbus's cancellations this year, they've had as many cancellations in the first quarter as in all but uh, five of the last 20 years. That's how big the cancellations are. But you could argue that actually what they're doing is they're cleaning their act up a bit. They are starting to trend towards Boeing's uh, ASC 606 accounting treatment, where you have to take orders that you are never going to deliver uh, out of your order book. And I think they deserve a tiny amount of uh, credit for that, because I think the Airbus order book looks more credible without the AirAsia order than it looked with it. Richard, uh, anything you want to briefly add to this and also uh, talk to us about the rationale between JetBlue and Spirit and whether or not uh, the transaction make uh, makes sense. This as uh, JetBlue announces that it's cutting its um, summer uh, schedule to avoid further flight disruptions. Dun, 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 hit it. Yeah, the 330neo increasingly looks like the MD-11 of our time, you know, going back to the well once too often uh, and, and coming up with a re-engined warm-over aircraft that might have been good when times were better on the wide-body front, but not so much now. And of course, exactly as I says about AirAsia, you know, <laughs> that the days of its fast growth are certainly gone. Um, Asia is not what it used to be in terms of the, you know, catalyst that they were receiving from low-cost carrier market increases. Um, and because, you know, frankly, the 321 NEOs that they've started to get, they do an awful lot of the job at lower cost and more flexibility. So, yeah, dead plane or dead order flying, as, uh, as Sash implied, <laughs> uh, you know, from my standpoint, um, on the other front, Frontier um, had their offer wasn't as good as JetBlue. Uh, but on the other hand, I understood the rationale for Frontier buying Spirit far more than I understand the rationale for JetBlue buying Spirit. I mean, talk about a clash of cultures and objectives. Uh, JetBlue is, uh, you know, 
it's more of a premium carrier than an LCC these days. They're somewhere skirting right. the middle. Whereas uh, Spirit, oh boy, that's uh, that's as low cost as it gets. Fits in nicely with Frontier. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see. I guess the rationale is let's just get bigger and let's strike now before the market fully recovers or something like that. But other than that, I, I'm not sure I understand it. But, you know, hey, a, a more lucrative offer is a more lucrative offer. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, going to just summarize uh, your point as we were planning this. China Eastern, no news. What does it mean, right? Yeah, it uh, seems odd that, you know, we've had possession of the, the black box and you know, joint possession and uh, nothing is coming out of it. So that can't be good. Uh, this clearly, like, you know, the overwhelming preponderance, I think, is turning it, it, it again, not knowing anything. But given that absence of information, looks like human malice was involved in one form or another. Uh, and indeed, that's uh, that's the concern that people have with an airplane that's been uh, in service for a very long time and, and known. Ron, you get the last word. National Space Symposium, you were out there. You spoke. Frank Kendall, uh, the Secretary of the United States uh, Air Force uh, and Space Force, right? I should say the Department of the Air Force. And then SpaceX had a very, very interesting launch. Uh, indeed, uh, you've got about a minute. Give us your takeaways from both of those. Yeah, so the, the space symposium was actually really exciting. It was a lot of fun, crowded, packed, um, a lot going on in space, uh, both on the government side and on the commercial side. Uh, everything from launch, various forms of Earth imagery, and then all the ancillary stuff that goes on there. Uh, it was packed, all the usual suspects were there, and then more. I think there was maybe 14,000 people um, at, at, the, at the event. So you know, trying to find a hotel room in Colorado Springs was tough. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, one we got to put on put on the list of, of going back every year. There's just a lot of interest in space right now, and, and a lot of it has really been driven by the uh, reduction of launch costs. Uh, and then we're just seeing all kinds of fascinating things done with small sats and Earth imagery of all kinds of forms, just optical, uh, synthetic aperture radar, uh, radio frequency, all, all, all kinds of interesting things. Um, and as an example of that, uh, just um, just this weekend, um, you know, SpaceX did a launch for Axiom Space, uh, and they recently docked uh, four uh, folks with the International Space Station. Uh, and so we've got you know kind of our our, our first, um, if you will, um, space tourism trip to the International Space Station. Uh, while they're there, they're going to be doing some uh, science experiments, science experiments, and some other things, but. This is yet another step forward for commercial aviation and the support of um, other activities. So I think it's uh, an exceedingly interesting and exciting time uh, in commercial space uh, and an area we're doing more work and, and watching closely. Uh, in, indeed, and I remember at the uh, annual conference uh, that we worked together on uh, many years ago. You know how many of those smaller commercial space companies? Maxar was there one year, right? And it's and it's uh, evolved into uh, a significant force in the industry. And I should also point out uh, that just before the National Space Symposium, uh, the Air Force Association formally changed its name to the Air and Space Forces uh, Association. Even though there's an argument to be made that. The Department of the Air Force is uh, still uh, the organization, and it could have stayed at that name, but certainly an opportunity to bring in space uh, folks to the to the fold. Uh, everybody, thanks very, very much. We could continue this conversation for another hour, but you've been very patient. Uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, as always, uh, on a weekend to spend with us. Uh, and I know that I and our audience really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hope you guys have a great, uh, great day, great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Fargo. It's always a pleasure.
Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Really appreciate it, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.